0: Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is, that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods within heaven, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as, being sec- uh, as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in the idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall.
1: Uh, good morning everyone. Good to see you and to be with you this morning as we uh, think together about uh, God's word. Great great thing to be able to do on a Sunday and in any day of the week. <laughs> uh, there's an outline of our uh, of the talk uh, in the bulletin there, if you 'd like to uh, follow there, <clears throat> we live in a culture <clears throat> that is obsessed with personal freedom, <clears throat> so much so that uh, you dare not challenge the sanctity of personal freedom, <clears throat> um, although this song was written in the mid 1960s the the song "I'm Free," written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, captures it. Uh, Unsurprisingly, it's had various reruns um, for decades, right up until recent times, reflecting the persistence of this cultural virtue or cultural value. It included these lines, I said I'm free to do what I want, to be what I want any old time. I said I'm free to be who I choose, to get my booze any old time. Okay, they weren't the greatest of songwriters. (laughs) But the sanctity of personal freedom is is closely linked to individualism and to the cult of self, affirming that we are independent and autonomous beings who really only realise our true potential when we push into ourselves uh, and find meaning in ourselves. Life is uh, about living for ourselves and being true to our authentic self. And again, at a popular level, uh, Oprah Winfrey captures it in her 2015 magazine. Uh, it's quoted in Matt Fuller's excellent little book. Um, if you've had a look at that, or if you've not had a look at that, it's a really, really worth a look. His book's called Be True to Yourself. The quote is, "'The fullness of our humanity can be expressed "'only when we are true to ourselves. "'Anything less is a faked life. "'To be authentic is the highest form of praise.'" You're fulfilling your mission and purpose on Earth when you honour the real you. Well, um, well, not surprisingly, living by such a philosophy leads to being incredibly self-absorbed and rather less preoccupied with other people and loving <coughs> and loving relationships. What do we do with the freedom that we have? That's that's the title of. This sermon. We're commencing a series, um, as Steve said, on the second half of 1 Corinthians today, and this topic of freedom comes up in chapters 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul's agenda is to help the Corinthians think rightly about the issue of food offered to idols. Now, food sacrificed to idols is hardly a hot topic for us today, you might think, but actually, Through this issue, and if you hang in there through the argument this morning, we we do gain some really important insights about the Christian self in action and on how to use the freedom that God has given us. Um, There's at least three big themes that emerge um, and connect in this chapter, and perhaps just a simple image will help you to get a bit of a feel for where we are going Think of them as like the layers of an onion that get peeled off. Or if that makes you expect that you're going to be shedding tears as we go, um, then think of concentric circles instead. I'm not aiming for tears, um, unless, of course, there are tears of repentance. The, The outer layer is the theme of food sacrifice to idols. But then under that layer... Uh, the second layer is the theme of knowledge. Paul speaks a lot here about what some people know and what others don't know when it comes to their approach to food sacrifice to idols. And then if you peel off that layer, then you see what Paul wants the Corinthians that he is addressing, whom is addressing at Corinth, to do with the knowledge as they exercise their freedom. So, so, um, so the first layer, the most obviously observable, the outer layer, observable thing, is the situation in Corinth that Paul is addressing in, uh, chap- in chapter, chapters 8 to 10. Verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. The important feature of Corinth to highlight is that Corinth was a city immersed in the worship of idols. Um, there were idol temples everywhere. And there's three aspects... Um, to this culture that impacted on the corinthian christians because they were all a very prominent part of normal day-to-day life in corinth one cultural practice related to being present at one of these idol temples when a priest offered a sacrifice on the altar of their god and and this usually happened in the open space um, just outside the temple the second cultural practice related to eating a meal after the sac- that sacrifice which included the meat that had been used in the sacrifice. And these meals uh, were either in the temple or they were in small dining rooms attached to the temple. And the third situation involved buying meat in the marketplace for consuming at home which included meat. Which had been used in a sacrifice sold to the the market, to the the sellers at the market. Well, these situations presented a pressing pastoral issue for Paul with the Corinthians. Temple culture was part of everyday life in Corinth. And apart from the Jews, everyone in the city would attend the festivals and the meals that were part of that temple culture. And at such events, People rubbed shoulders with others in their city, they transacted business, they found employment, they talked about local issues. It was part of civic life. And so to not attend was a big deal and would make you stand out from the crowd. So no wonder this was a big issue for Paul to help the Corinthians think through. Well, as I said, the way Paul addresses this issue is firstly by teaching them about knowledge. So we're going to go to that second layer of the onion. He lays an important foundation that he needs to lay before he gets to the topic of the use of our freedom. So if you're following the outline, we're on the second heading, uh, knowledge versus love. See it in verse 1. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, uh, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Uh, Paul's not anti-knowledge, Indeed, when he says we know that we all possess knowledge, he's most likely referring to theological knowledge, to things about knowledge that he frequently refers to in his letters, knowledge about God, knowledge of our salvation, of our hope, of how we are to live as Christians. Um, But then there is this general saying, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. He contrasts knowledge with love here because the attainment of knowledge... Alone can be the occasion for a loveless pride and arrogance. And so he's already here uh, subtly exonerating the Corinthians who were who were besotted with wisdom we know from er- earlier in 1 Corinthians. The warning is that with knowledge, we can easily feel spiritually or intellectually superior to others if we have knowledge that others don't have. We can use our knowledge to push ourselves forward, uh, even to the detriment of others, as some of the Corinthians were doing, as we will see. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? It is something to watch out for. I I speak from personal experience. It's so so easy in conversation to kind of rattle off a few Bible verses in different parts of the Bible on a particular topic and then on reflection later I'm aware of how mixed our motives can be, how mixed my motives can be. But on the one hand, I want to build up other brothers and sisters in Christ, in love. And yet, I'm, it's tainted by the motive of wanting um, to, uh, to look good by showing how much I know. Knowledge uh, puffs up. But love builds up. Love seeks to use the knowledge of God that we have for the spiritual benefit of others. To edify them, to build them up in their faith is the language Paul uses. And these chapters are, are heading towards chapter 13 where he's going to speak about the most excellent way of love and he'll correct the Corinthians for pride in their approach to their spiritual gifts, including fathoming all mysteries and all knowledge, but not having love. So, so having exonerated them here in verses 2 to 3 for their knowledge without love, um, he, then, he then highlights uh, their lack of humility and he, and he does it by way of this little riddle those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know even those who think they know a lot about God can actually know next to nothing um, they think they know something uh, in quote uh, inverted commas that points to their pride about um, their knowledge not to their humility and ultimately to boast in their knowledge might even even actually be a proclamation of their ignorance they've deceived themselves into thinking that they know something into assuming that they know what they need to know without humility for what god wants them to know <clears throat> and you know as, as we reflect on this a little bit one of the things that we need to be careful with so we aren't deceiving ourselves Um, is that we don't just think and talk and aim for Christian growth in terms of knowing more than I did before. That doesn't sum up Christian growth and maturity. Christian growth, Christian maturity includes growing in knowledge, yes, but it's also about growing in obedience and growing in love. It's about growing as a servant as we serve one another in love. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And then in verse 3, he he captures uh, what is the knowledge that really counts. The knowledge that really counts is to know God. Although although he doesn't quite say it like that, does he? The knowledge that counts is to be known by God. It's relational knowledge he speaks of here, knowing and being known, to know God as he has revealed himself to us and wonderfully to be known by God. If we're to know God, we must reach out to God through his word about the cross, about Jesus' death on the cross, the gospel, which in chapter 1 of this letter is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, um, Paul says it is the power of God. As we humbly depend on Christ and as we express our love for him, um, then we are known and we are fully known by God. It's relational knowledge of God that set the Corinthian Christians apart from the idol worshippers around them in Corinth. That sets them apart because you can't know the one true living God through idols. And God in his wisdom has made relationship with him possible through the cross of Jesus. So here Paul sets the scene for what he's about to say about freedom By warning the Corinthians that having knowledge can lead to pride but but having love leads to building up up others. And it's relational knowledge um, that counts. So having laid that foundation, Paul starts to move towards the matter of Christian freedom in verses 4 to 6, the next next layer down. And his argument in verses 4 to 6 goes like this he agrees with the corinthians uh, about what uh, he agrees with what the corinthians know that as christians we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no other god but one as israel uh, were taught through their scriptures uh, for example in deuteronomy 6 the lord the lord our god is one referring not only to the truth that you can't divide god that Christianity is monotheistic, but also to the truth that God is utterly unique. There is one God and no other God. Although in Corinth there were many so-called gods and many lords, Paul says here that they are only so-called gods. And uh, he brings the Lord Jesus clearly into the Godhead in in his reworking of Deuteronomy 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things uh, came and for whom we live and there is but one lord Jesus Christ through whom all things uh, uh, came and through whom we live see again how important this would have been uh, in Corinth as well as in so many cities in the world today the gods and lords proliferating in these in these places are merely said to be gods and lords they exist only in the minds and lips of the worshippers. There's only one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who's made us and who has redeemed us and who has brought us into fellowship with himself as our Father, who forgives us and welcomes home wayward sinners um, just like us, as Jesus' uh, story of the prodigal son pitches so beautifully. Uh, And this knowledge of God uh, brings true freedom jesus said in in john 8 31 to 32 that if we hold to his teaching um, we are true disciples and then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free it liberates us it frees us from our slavery to sin it frees us from all evil powers uh, liberates us from the kingdom of darkness We are forgiven and we have a place in the Father's house forever, brought into the palace of the King as his royal children, not as slaves, no longer enslaved by our sin, but as his dearly loved children. But Paul has raised what we know about God here in the context of verses 1 and 4 about eating food sacrificed to idols. So that freedom from sin that we have in Christ also brings with it some freedoms with regard to the behaviour of the Corinthians. So by implication here, if the Corinthians know the one true God and that the idols are only so-called gods, then the food sacrificed to the idols, who are nothing at all, um, can only be considered to be ordinary food, not sacrificial food. And so in principle... Uh, the Christian in Corinth is free to eat idol food as ordinary food. That food hasn't been sort of hallowed by the hocus-pocus of the ceremony of the idol temple. So eating it will not defile the eater, it's just ordinary food that they are free to eat. The Corinthian Christians who knew this would also have known the teaching um, of the Lord Jesus in Mark 7 that nothing outside a person... Um, coming into them um, defiles them. Rather, what comes from uh, what comes from out from us, from our hearts, defiles us and makes us unacceptable to God. And Mark's comment is that Jesus therefore declared all foods uh, to be clean. Now, the truth of this principle is applied later when we get to chapter ten, where he will say. Um, that if an unbeliever invites you to a meal where um, such food might be served up and you want to go, eat whatever is before you without raising questions of conscience, you are free to eat. In that same chapter, two two chapters later, he will come right out and say he doesn't want them to participate in any social function that overtly smacks of idolatry. But he doesn't make that hard strike yet with the Corinthians. Uh, Not until he first carefully and lovingly teaches them some other things first, like what we're seeing today and what we're going to see next week in chapter 9 about about freedom. So, So knowing Christ does bring freedom when it comes to eating food that's been sacrificed to idols... But there's a restriction on that freedom that comes next. Paul wants the Corinthians to be much more careful than they have been about the Christian brother or sister with a weak conscience. See it in verse 7? So yes, you have this freedom, but, verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Not everyone amongst the Corinthian Christians has this knowledge. That is, the knowledge we've just been looking at, that God is one, that idols have no existence whatever, that the knowledge that flows from this, that they're permitted to eat idol food as ordinary food... Rather, those with a weak conscience who have been so accustomed to to the idol worship in Corinth, they think of it as idol food dedicated to the God and they've been programmed to think of it this way. Their weak conscience is weak in that it is unable to make a proper judgment about what's right and wrong because they haven't been properly informed, they haven't yet accepted good teaching on this and they think that eating it will defile them. So, so in verses 8 to 13, Paul says that those who know they are free uh, to eat idle, sacrificed food should be careful in the exercise of their freedom. We're at that heading now, knowledge ruled by love. See it in verse 9? Be careful that the exercise of your rights, that is your freedom, doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. They're not free to eat exactly what they like whenever they like. He wants them to choose to put limits over their freedom and for very good reasons. And the example that he gives, which could be hypothetical yet a real possibility, is of someone with a weaker conscience seeing you with all knowledge, read here, puffed up with knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. And as I've already said, chapter 10 makes it clear that this believer shouldn't have been there in the first place, but he doesn't say that yet. He starts with his concern for the weaker brother or sister who sees this and who will then be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols. And by such eating, they act against their conscience, they wound their weak conscience, and to act against, to act against conscience... Uh, is to sin. The offender is, u- the offender is using their knowledge without love and acting in a way that will cause spiritual harm to a brother or sister. And, you know, when he says here that they'll be emboldened to eat, it's the same word used in verse 2 for building up. It's a really interesting play on words here. If they see you, they will be built up, not built up for good, built up for destruction not built up lovingly in the faith, but built up for destruction. The seriousness of this action is highlighted by the strong language that Paul uses here of causing them to stumble or to fall or of destroying their faith. It means causing someone to perish, to be lost from the kingdom of God that by eating in idols' temples, exercising the freedom they thought they had, they are actually encouraging those who are weak to move away from Christ and to go back to the worship of idols. How should we use our freedom? Paul's overriding concern here in chapter 8 is that the Corinthians use their knowledge in love for one another. Out of love for a brother or sister in Christ, they are to put limits on their freedoms. Be prepared to say no to the things that in principle they're free to do out of love for the good of the other person. Love leads Christians to to give up their rights for the sake of others, to be careful um, that we are never a stumbling block to the weak. Uh, And Christians show that tender concern and great care rather than carelessness because in verse 11 the weaker brother or sister is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. Paul's Paul's tender pastoral concern for the weaker brother or sister here is a mirror of the love of Christ for the lost, for sinners, for the little ones of Israel for whom he died. If If we wound the conscience of the weak we wound someone who's part of the body of Christ. We wound someone for whom Christ died. And so we must never make light of causing a brother or sister to fall into sin, but show such care and compassion for our brothers and sisters that we'll never do anything that might cause them to stumble. So careful is Paul about this matter that in his conclusion in verse 13, um, he puts himself forward as a model before the Corinthians that I think he wants them to imitate. If eating meat causes a brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. Boy, that sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? So that I will not cause them to fall. So so what can we say a bit more specifically about how this passage applies to us? Just a couple of things... Um, to round things off here uh, and and I, I hope, I trust, hit it home a little. Do we stop and think about how our brothers and sisters are in their standing with Christ? Do we, do we know in which areas some of our brothers and sisters are, are weak and are struggling? So we need to keep fostering true love in relationships, love where we actually stop and we ask specifically how someone is and we listen to them. Um, it's a simple but perhaps um, dying art in our culture where relationships are so much more on the surface. Part of that culture is an over-reliance on social media where we project a kind of limited or even false picture of what's really going on in our lives. It, and it's so easy for people to go... Under the under the under spiritually to go under our radar, under the radar of anyone in a congregation with no one knowing. So, uh, who do you need to show special concern for at at the moment? See, I think the Apostle Paul is such a great model here in his tender care for God's people. And he said in 2 Corinthians 11 that he faced daily the pressure of his concern for all the churches. And he said, Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? Paul himself, who felt weak, but who identif- he identified with the weak, with the gentleness and with the humility of Christ as he inwardly burned at the prospect of a weak Christian falling away from, from the Lord Jesus. We need to show... Um, such spiritual concern for others that we take the time to get to know them well. And then we'll be able to know how to care for them spiritually and point them to Jesus so they're established and firm and persevere uh, in the faith. That's the particular responsibility of a pastor, but it's also a responsibility that we all share in as we spiritually care for one another. But this passage does get more specific than that as it calls us also to look at ourselves And to see if there is any possibility that by our lives uh, we might actually be at risk of sinning against a brother or sister and so sinning against Christ. How we live our lives uh, impacts on, on uh, on those around us. And our actions often speak louder than our words. And are there things that we say and do which... In principle, we, we are quite free to say and do as Christians, but for the sake of a weaker brother or sister, we'll choose not to do because it might damage or even destroy their faith. We take such care that even if we're not sure, but we think it might be a stumbling block for another, then we'll choose not to act in a particular way. Um, there's numerous possibilities. I hope you'll think of some that I don't mention. And that you'll think of them out of tender love and care um, for others in our Christian family. So we're free to drink alcohol in moderation, to go to a pub. We're free to eat any food we like. We're free to do work on a Sunday. We're free to dance. We're free to watch movies and read books and listen to music that parades worldly values and lifestyle. We are free... Uh, to use Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. Uh, However, apart from the questions we ought to ask about whether all of these are actually always good for our own body and soul, um, we must always exercise any freedoms we have in love. So what what if a fellow Christian whom you're in, in regular fellowship with now or sometime in the future disagrees with you about something that you know you are free to do. It's tempting and I think very easy to dismiss their opinion as irrelevant and continue on our merry way without giving it a second thought. But Paul actually stops us in our tracks, I think, and says, be careful. In doing any one of these or other things that you could think of that might be a stumbling block to someone else, will will you choose not to do them. Sorry, if doing any of these or other things you could think of might be a stumbling block to someone else, will you choose not to do them? Be alert to the fact that for some people, to see you participating in some things, they will think of that action differently to the way you do. It can be because of their own personal history, including a whole gamut of psychosocial kind of problems. But it can also be, in the case of this chapter, due to their religious background. And to participate may cause them to stumble, to spiral them back into patterns of living that could ultimately destroy their faith. It might seem kind of strange that I raise this kind of thing today. But, you know, and I kind of, I, I, I wrestled with that a little, just a little. But I think that's more to do with our Christian culture today and the influence of our surrounding permissive culture upon us. That we tend to be on the permissive end of of, of the spectrum in our Christian culture today. Whereas, say, around the 1960s when I was a young child and earlier than this, I gather that it was quite common for Christian culture to be at the restrictive end of that spectrum when Christians were taught not to dance or drink alcohol or do any kind of work um, whatsoever on Sundays. That was much more common. And I'm not proposing that we go back to that. What we need to do is to hear the gospel truth of 1 Corinthians 8, loud and clear, because it's gospel truth that ought to drive us to either do or not do certain things to either give full expression to our freedom in these matters on some occasions and also at other times to restrict our freedoms not only for our spiritual good but for the good of our brothers and sisters all around us. See, the freedom that we have in Christ is not like the freedom that the world speaks of. I'm free to do as I want, to be what I want any old time. That's not our freedom. That kind of freedom is no freedom at all. That's to be enslaved to our selfish ambitions and pleasures. The freedom I have in Christ is, is so reorientating and so far-reaching that I will not insist on exercising my freedoms. I'll use my newfound freedom in Christ to go far, so far as to sacrifice my freedom for the good of others. So, so true freedom frees us to love. True love leads us to seek the good of others and even put limits around my freedom for their good. We do it because Jesus gave up his life for us and knowing that love compels me to no longer live for myself but for him and for his glory. And the extent of that love includes that we'll resolve never to do anything That may cause a brother or a sister to fall. Let's pray. Lord, you are the one true God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that we who belong to you might continue uh, to turn away from idolatry in its many forms. Uh, But help us, we pray, to reject the kind of knowledge that is only about puffing ourselves up. Help us instead to show tender love and care for those who are weak and to take great care not to so exercise our freedoms that we might cause a brother or sister to fall into sin. Lord, we pray for continued growth in this true love and true freedom through knowing Christ who sacrificed his life for us. Amen.